Good morning and welcome to Echoes of Calvary. This is your host, Greg Sweeting. Thank you for opening your home to us this morning. I invite you to now open your hearts and worship with us as we share from the Word of God. Stay with us as we share comments and illustrations with a spiritual application, present special music to call us to worship, and in a few minutes, Pastor Alan Lee will come to share insights from Scripture and explain how to apply God's Word that we might grow to be complete in Christ. In these broadcasts over the years, I've often chosen scientific subjects to talk about, and more often than not, something that speaks to the creation or evolution, so to speak. I also frequently read The Economist newspaper, and quite often there are informative articles in the science section of that newspaper that generate fodder for a good broadcast topic. Not to be outdone, yesterday I read another such article, and so here I am again on the subject of evolution. I suppose one of the things that makes this area so interesting to me is to watch the great scientists of our age struggle and stumble as they're continually trying to find a way to eliminate the need for a creator in their scientific world. Of course, there are many scientists who do believe in a creator and a god, a person who exists, who made all things and by the power of his word. But so often the secular world predominates the news media, and so it is that secularist view comes into these scientific articles so often. The one yesterday made a powerful statement that caused me to wonder how it had slipped through this net. I even wondered for a moment or two if the editor appreciated what the journalist had apparently admitted to in his article. It was headed, Evolution which bought space in the newspaper. The article was actually entitled Butterfly Ball and was a paper discussing how scientists have recently begun to understand how various species evolve into variations of the species. A butterfly still, as an example, but different enough from others in the species to have a variant DNA. It was interesting to read how these butterflies change their designs and shape of their wings or even their coloring so as to fool predators who may wish to have them for dinner. But it was the preamble to the discussion of the discoveries I mentioned above that caught my interest and in my opinion stumbled and inadvertently admitted the fallacy of the entire evolutionary premise. Let me quote the article. Despite its ambitious title, Charles Darwin's masterwork did not really explain the origin of the species. Rather, it explained how species change, which is not quite the same thing. End of quote. Did you hear that the same way I did? All my life I've been hearing people talk about Darwin and his origin of the species, which I believe is actually its title. This scientific paper that I read now dares to contradict that premise, despite its title claiming to be the thing it is not, claiming to be sold down the years as an explanation of how species evolved from one species to another, how a monkey eventually became a man, simply put. You get the point. Now we find someone daring to say it like it is. 
It did not explain it at all, he says. It merely explained how species change but still remain the same species, only with variations. Evolved from a butterfly to a butterfly. That's not what we've been told, is it? I return again to my theme said so often on this broadcast. Professing themselves to be wise, they become fools. From Romans trying too hard, appearing to be so professional and well-educated, these scientists constantly hit a brick wall when trying to deny God. The more they discover, the more evidence points to a creator God. The more they discover, the more they understand how much they do not know. The God who made us, made us with an intellect and an ability and a desire to discover an inquisitive mind to inquire and look into things. Children constantly ask why, because they want to know. God wants us to seek and to discover. He's not afraid of our asking why. He made us that way. But it is so unfortunate that we use that inquisitiveness to try and undiscover God, to prove we don't need him, that he doesn't even exist. How wonderful and gratifying and so fulfilling when we discover something new and wonderful about our world or the universe and we can attribute that to a loving, omnipotent God, a God who cares about us, who loved us with an unending love, who sent his one and only son to pay a ransom and redeem us so that we could spend eternity in the grandeur and glory of heaven with him. I prefer that, don't you? But you became a simple man You didn't have to serve the poor and afflicted But you touched and healed their brokenness No greater love has been given You became the ultimate sacrifice Created me the heart of a servant my soul desire Show me how to love In the true meaning of the word Teach me to sacrifice Expecting nothing in return I want to give my life away Becoming more like you each and every day My words are not enough Show me how to love I saw a bruised and battered woman With her hungry children on the streets Then I heard you ask In that still small voice What have you done for the least of these? Lord, consume me with a burning fire Let melt away my complacency Then let me be moved with love and compassion That someone might find a way in me Show me how to love In the true meaning of the word Expecting nothing in return 
And now with his message for today, here's Senior Pastor Emeritus, Alan Lee. Good morning. Last time in my first message in this short series I've entitled The Christmas Story Sushi Style, I concluded my last message with this question. Are we using Christmas for the purpose of its existence and essence, or are we really abusing it for other means, as worthwhile as it may be at other times? Are we using it to celebrate us instead of him? I'm just asking, mind you. I'm not really Pastor Scrooge Lee at all. I'm just trying to be faithful in doing my job as a teacher of the Word of God. Of course, the two interests could become one that I was speaking about. Let me give you an example. Not too long ago, just before Christmas, a young lady came into my office to discuss a particular problem she was facing. The conversation eventually came to focus on a personal relationship to Jesus Christ. It ended with her receiving him as her savior. Then you know what? This is what she said. Quote, this is really a great Christmas for me. I have received the first Christmas gift ever given. End of quote. Her interest was also the interest of Jesus Christ. That's why he came to earth to save sinners like you and like me. And so let me ask you again, have you received the first Christmas gift ever offered? If you haven't, then our celebrating this Christmas time would be like eating that candy cane I told you about, a candy that was created to witness for Jesus Christ. But yet many people use it at Christmas time without knowing why it was made. Many Christians will not even attend church services that are being held to celebrate this awesome event that we call the Incarnation. And they will not do so for the same reason or for the fact that they are either preparing for a Christmas party or recuperating from one they've already had. And they're doing it with the conviction that they are celebrating the birth of Christ. 
I ask you, when we do this, are we celebrating Christmas for what it actually is? Or are we abusing Christmas for our own personal and selfish purposes? I ask you again, are we not displaying the candy cane without explaining why it was made? My friends, this is Christmas sushi style. No punches pulled. Now let me switch gears for a moment to give even another perspective on Christmas and our response to it, sushi style. Think for a moment before you answer this question. If Christ were to be conceived today, under the same circumstances he was 2,000 years ago, would he be allowed to be born? And if he were, would you be prepared to receive him as the Son of God? Let me reconstruct the story to fit our day. Two teenagers, let's call them Jane and Jean. G-E-N-E is the man, J-N-E is the young lady. Both are Christians from God-fearing families. They are engaged to be married. For financial reasons, the wedding is planned for a year after the engagement. Jane leaves to visit a relative in Abaco. Two or three months later, she returns and goes immediately to Jane and says, Jean, I'm pregnant. Of course, Jean is blown out of his mind. He wants to know, first of all, who the man is. Jane tells him it was not a man, but the Holy Spirit. How do you know that, Jane asks. An angel told me so in a dream, Jane responds. Now I ask you seriously, in this psychological age in which we live, what would you think a modern-day Jane's response would be to that statement? I suggest it be something like this. My fiancé has flipped. Her religion has gone to her head. Now she's hearing voices. And what about her parents? They would probably give her two pieces of advice. First, she needs to see a psychiatrist. She's psychotic. Second, if she did come to them before going to Jane, they would probably say to her, get an abortion. You won't even have to let Jane know about it. You can allow this unplanned pregnancy to keep you from having a good future and a happy marriage. So go to one of our clinics. They could do the job quickly and safely and call it a necessary medical procedure, a DNC. Most of our doctors would do it gladly to save you from the mental and psychological stress that this birth would cause you. Now I ask you, would that not fit our present-day culture to the T? I tell you that the moral climate and religious shallowness that we have today, it would be almost impossible for Jesus to be born today. My friends, this is the Christmas story, sushi style, raw and without the modern-day trimming of tinsel and fairy makeover that we have made it. Think about it. Now let's carry the scenario a step further. The teenagers decided to marry anyway, and to eliminate family and social pressure, they decide to leave Nassau and to go and live on Long Island. However, by the time they get to Clarence Town or Deadman's Key, the annual regatta is in full swing. They cannot find a motel or hotel anywhere on the island, not even a house to rent, and Jane is almost ready to give birth. Jean and Jane are now two homeless teenagers in their own country. They are refugees, no family, no place to have the baby, much less to live. Think about it. 
That's not unlike many who come to our shores almost daily, is it? In fact, it's not unlike many who actually live here already, who, whether by design or by no fault of their own, have no place to live. I ask you, what would you do if you were a hotel manager and one of your clerks tells you that a teenage girl who says she was made pregnant by the Holy Spirit needs a place to spend a night before she gives birth to the child? Now I ask you with all sincerity, would you try to find a room for her? Or would you tell her to look elsewhere and recommend getting a flight back to Nassau and head for Sandlands right away? I'm asking you, is it possible that the Christmas story sushi style is designed by God to encourage and teach us to be more aware to what's happening around us in the lives of others? Is it possible because of our lack of sensitivity to the down and outer, the needy among us, even the non-documented or illegal alien, that we miss out on entertaining angels and perhaps even turning our backs on the Son of God? My friends, it is not absolutely outside of the divine plan to send another son or even daughter into the world at this time. If he did, would we treat him any differently than the biblical innkeeper? Would God's son find a home in today's world? Would he be treated any better than he was when he came 2,000 years ago? Let me ask you this way. Would he find Rome in the inn of your life? Now I realize that this is a huge hypothetical theological question. But suppose if it were true nonetheless, would you, would I be receptive to God coming in the flesh again? What if he came as a black Bahamian, or a white one for that matter, or as a Chinese, as a Haitian, as a Jamaican? Would you be able to countenance the idea that God could or would reveal himself in any other form than the peasant Jew? Yes, I know all about his divine plan regarding the nation of Israel and all of that. But the bottom line is that God sent his son to redeem the world. Please listen to me carefully now. This is the Christmas story, sushi style. You see, in the final analysis, the point of the incarnation was not that God became a Jew, but rather that he became a man, or better, he became in the likeness of sinful flesh, without sin. The incarnation demonstrated more than anything else that God considers all men to be equal in his sight, none better or worse than the other. All are sinners worthy of his condemnation, but more importantly, they are also worthy of his grace. The incarnation makes the bold statement that God is not a racist or a bigot, and that all people, regardless of color, race, or social status, are objects of his love and need of his redemption. He was willing to give his son for the salvation of all men without exception. The most well-known and famous verse in the Bible makes this extremely clear. This is what it says, and I quote, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is still the clearest expression of the purpose and motivation for Christmas. Christ was born in a barn in Bethlehem so that he could die on a cross outside of Jerusalem for all mankind, you and me included. And so, if Christmas does not change your attitude both toward God and your fellow man for the better, then, to use an illustration, 
Again, you're eating the candy cane without knowing why it was made in the first place. Christmas tells us that God loves us. Love for our fellow man tells us that we love God. For as the Apostle John says, If we do not love our brethren whom we have seen, how can we say we love God whom we have not seen? That's Christmas, sushi style, my friends. Think about it. Now, in case you think I'm being overly dramatic or perhaps dramatically overcome concerning how we have missed, forgotten, or simply rejected or neglected the true essence of Christmas, let me read you a version of Christmas not too many of us read during this season. In fact, we have become so brainwashed with the sanitized version of the Christmas story seen from the commercialized religious perspective that we have actually forgotten that God has also given us heaven's version of Christmas as well. Please turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 12 and listen now as I read the word of God. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Let me make a comment here. Most conservative scholars would hold that this woman speaks of either or both Israel who produced the Messiah or Mary through whom he was born. Verse 2, she was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon. Isn't that something? He's dressed in red with seven heads and ten horns. Note, not one horn, but ten, and seven crowns on his head. Notice now verse 4, his tail, that's right, he even has a tail, and a long one at that. In fact, it is so long, the scripture said, it swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Notice this now, this is heaven's version of the birth of Christ. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will reel all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. End of quote. I say again, this is one version of the Christmas story we do not read to our children, even though it was told by Jesus himself in the book of Revelation. This is heaven's cosmic version of the birth of Christ. Earth's version is the result of this battle between the forces of God and the forces of the red jargon. The incarnation, my friends, was the most strategic and ingenious military tactic any general ever used against his enemy. Jesus became a man in order to be God's champion to do battle with the host of hell headed up by the red dragon. He did not come to encourage parties and revelry in his honor. He came to destroy the works of the devil and to set us free from the fear of death and the power of sin that the red monster has over us. And he didn't do it in a manger. He did it on a cross. And just as the red devil waited for the birth of the cosmic Christ in Revelation 12 so he could destroy him, so he waited in Luke 2 in the person of Herod to destroy the Christ child. He is still trying to do it in one form or another today. 
He is doing it by causing us to lose the true significance of Christmas, the time when God's champion entered into the very stronghold of the Red Dragon to take him on as God's specially designated champion, Emmanuel, God with us. This was a battle to the death for the life of sinful men. The battle was won by God's champion, not in the manger, I say, but on the cross. There Jesus crushed the head of the red devil, that old serpent. And although he bruised his own heel through his death in doing so, he was the mighty victor nonetheless, because he arose from the dead three days later. That's the story of Christmas, my friends, sushi style. It tells us that it was God himself who set this cosmos aspect of Christmas in motion. He did so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Listen to these words. Speaking to Satan in the form of a certain, this is what God said. Quote, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. End of quote. That, my friends, is Christmas sushi style. It has to do with the birth of the seed through the Virgin Mary that would crush Satan and his seed forever. It's in the context of a huge spiritual war, not on a silent night, holy night, in an unknown town called Bethlehem. Think about it, my friends. That's the Christmas story, sushi style. As always, this is Pastor Emeritus Alan Lee saying, Selah, think and act on these things. You have been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 o'clock in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We extend an invitation to you to join us on these occasions. If you would like to contact the church or Pastor Lee, address your letters to Echoes of Calvary, Post Office Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And so we come to an end of this broadcast. I invite you to think about the message this morning. Consider the one who is our Savior and Lord. Grow to be complete in Him. And remember, as echoes from Calvary stir in your heart, keep listening for that shout, Maranatha, the Lord is coming soon. Therefore evermore to stay. The great command is promised, he will surely come again. I am listening every moment, for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together, when the saints shall leave the town. And our toiling will be
happen in a moment. Jesus Christ could come again. I am listening every moment for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the ground. Happen in a moment, Jesus Christ could come again.